So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter 8, like I said, and we're going to continue on in our series this morning as we talk specifically about um, what it looks like for a Christian to endure some difficult times. Um, Romans, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, um, verses 26 through 29. Just a few verses this morning, and because it'll be so few, we'll be able to walk through them a little bit more slowly. Uh, you're like, slowly, that's not good. Don't worry. We'll just, you know what I'm saying. We'll pace ourselves a little better. So here we go. Romans 8, 26 through 29 says this. I have to find it in my Bible. There it is. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Something that we talked about last week, that Pastor Matt talked about last week, was this idea of suffering, this concept of suffering. And there's a couple of things that are givens in this passage that we're looking at this morning. The first and maybe most obvious one is this. Uh, If you are a believer, if you're a person who has faith in Jesus and has chosen to follow him, then um, you will experience and be forced to even endure suffering. Suffering is something that is a reality in the life of every believer. Now, uh, it's a given in the passages that we were in last week and in the one in this week, but it's important that we state what the given is because um, that is a hard truth for many people. You know, many come to faith actually believing um, that the way it works is that if you choose to follow Jesus and have faith in him, then the reward that will come is that you won't suffer, or maybe you'll suffer less, right? When we talk about trials and persecution and pain and suffering and loss and all the things that are encapsulated in this term, suffering, um, what we talk about, sure, there are points in life in which wise living leads to a smoother path. The way Proverbs describes uh, the path of life is basically this. Wisdom is a straight path and foolishness is a crooked path. So you can spend your whole life making bad choices and bad decisions, and it's going to take a lot longer to get wherever you're going, and you're going to get distracted a lot more along the way, and you're going to stop and find yourselves having to deal with and fix and and put out fires and all kinds of stuff like that as you get where it is that you're going. To live with wisdom is to be on a path that is straight. And I think what that uh, presumes is that that straight path is going to be a little easier than the crooked one. So yes, while to follow Christ, to follow the teachings of Christ, to see the truth of God and to choose to live that out in your life is going to help you avoid some hard, bad, really oftentimes foolish things. What that doesn't tell us 
is that if you choose to be a follower of Jesus, put your faith in him, become a part of the kingdom of God, are adopted as his son or daughter, that your life will be free from suffering. The hard truth is that many of us even begin our Christian lives believing that that's the reward for following Jesus. We might have heard a gospel that said that to us. We might have read some books that promised something different or better to us. And then you start reading Jesus in the gospels and you start to feel the way the disciples felt hanging around them all the time like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't understand if you're so good, if God is in you, if he's empowering you to do all these great things, why are bad things always happening? And why do you keep warning us that they're going to get even worse? Because the message of Jesus is that suffering is as much a part of the life of a believer as it is of someone who is not a believer. Christians will suffer. This is why we read in 1 Peter. I love the way that it's worded here from the Apostle Peter. He says to the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Right? How often is this the way that we feel or we react, right? Like something bad happens, life gets hard, and we get surprised, like, what is going on? What is this thing? Peter says, don't even act like that, okay? Don't act like this stuff, difficulty in life, is a, is a shock, is a surprise. You should expect it will be a part of life. There's another given in this passage that we read, and it's in the very beginning. And again, it's not even like it's instructed to us. Paul just assumes that the church is doing it. And it is this, that suffering will lead us to pray. The presumption here in these verses, uh, even we read here in the first verse, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So it is assumed that in our suffering and our difficulty, we're praying. That's an assumption that Paul makes. He assumes that the people of the church, as they're dealing with hard situations, are talking to God about what's going on in their life. They're bringing it to him. They're on their knees. They're crying out, and they're bringing it to him. And so he's instructing the church on what it's like to pray in those times and in those seasons. And if you've been in that situation, you know how much his words here ring true. Step one is to pray. Just as much as suffering is a part of the life of a Christian, prayer is a part of the life of a Christian. And for many of us, if we're honest, it's a very rare thing to have happen in our lives. If step one is to pray as we're enduring and dealing with these things, then many of us would have to admit, that's not something I do very much. I don't know how to pray. I don't feel comfortable praying. I don't have time to pray. I don't know when to pray and who to pray with, and I certainly am not going to pray in front of other people, and people are around a lot of times, I notice, and that makes it hard. So we say we will pray, we intend to pray, but we don't. Instead, we we act. First, before we act, we plan, we think, we discuss, we seek counsel from others, we share, we gossip, then we act. We do so many things in leading up to praying, and yet many of us don't take that step. 
Or we begin to pray and we, we fumble through something that feels so awkward or so uncomfortable to us or so uh, we feel so inadequate in it that uh, as one author put it so well, uh, they said, when we begin to pray, the first thing that we become aware of is our inadequacy of praying, is how empty we feel when we start talking to God. It says that's the first step to prayer. It is a disorienting one, but it is an important one that we must endure and go through. For many of us, we feel that we don't have the time. We don't know what to say. Many of us simply aren't used to talking to God. We're just not very comfortable with it. And so when trials and circumstances come up, though, what they will force us to do is they will, it seems, force us to pray. Suffering will lead us to pray in a way that the good times, the easy times of life will not. But if we're not in the habit of doing it first, when things are good, when life is regular, when the trials haven't yet come, then praying starts to feel kind of like something that's behind a pane of glass that says, in case of fire, break this glass, right? I don't know if anyone here has ever reached for a fire extinguisher that wasn't properly serviced, or maybe you just put up there and realized you don't actually know how to use this thing. But when the emergency comes, you're like, oh no, I don't actually know how this works, or I haven't paid attention to it in so long, it's not any help to me. So you end up throwing an empty fire extinguisher at a fire. That doesn't work. It might work in the movies, I don't know. One of the hard truths of the Christian life is that most will not really talk to God as a regular part of our day and our lives. I say this uh, fully admitting that it has constantly been a challenge for me as a believer and is to this day to actually talk to God, to actually invite God into my life by choice instead of just doing things and living my life. I have all kinds of reasons for not doing it. I get busy, I get distracted, I take action before I do anything else. Much of the time, it's even been that my view of God almost feels so high that I think he couldn't possibly care what's really going on. It's just going to happen the way it's going to happen, and my words won't make much of a difference. Why on earth would I pray? What good could it really do? But as we pray, we are to pray a specific way. We're to pray... um, that God's will would be done in our suffering and in our pain. This is not an easy thing to do, to cry out to God and ask him to intervene. I don't know about you guys, but I spend most of my life not knowing exactly what I want in a situation. It's actually harder as you grow up and you're not a kid. When you're a kid, I feel like maybe you know what you want more. Although I've, I've been in line to get ice cream and I've gotten frustrated with the people in front of me who asked their three-year-old, like, what do you want? Let's go through all the options. Let's take our time. I want you to decide. In those situations, kids don't know what they want. But usually they do. As we get older, we find that it gets harder and harder for things to be quite that simple. 
I could spend most of my life not knowing exactly what I want, how I want for things to go, what job should I take, where should my family live, how am I supposed to navigate where I'm at in life right now, how on earth, what on earth am I supposed to do about this kid that I'm dealing with right now, how on earth am I supposed to navigate this pandemic that is going on right now, how on earth am I supposed to handle this relationship in my family that I'm dealing with right now, it is actually pretty difficult for us to know exactly what we want in situations most of the time. We rarely experience total clarity on what our will is in life. But do you know when we get total perfect clarity on what our will is in life? When we suffer. And this is what's so hard. When suffering begins, everything gets easier. I know what I don't want. And it's this thing happening right now. Instant clarity. Thanks God, I've got it, I'll take it from here. And how frustrating is it that in that exact moment, we are supposed to finally say, okay, God, I want what you want. No, I could say it all the other times. I could say it when I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life, what I was supposed to do in my marriage, what I was supposed to do with this kid, what I was supposed to do with this job. But now I know what I want, and I certainly know what I don't want, and I'm supposed to cry out to God and say, not my will be done, Lord, but your will. That seems to be the way that we are to pray, the way that we are to talk. So, of course, it's in this moment, the moment when we know what we want the most, that we are to ask for what it feels like someone else wants. It feels unrealistic that anyone would truly be able to do this. It almost seems like it would, in those moments, be even physically impossible to ask for God's will over our own. The good news, according to Paul, is God's got that covered. He knew it would happen. He's got a plan for it. That's what Paul outlines for us here. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, as we ought to. We don't know how to ask for the things that we really should ask for. We really know how to ask for the things that we want, but not necessarily what we ought to ask for. But the Spirit himself, says Paul, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Our weakness we become aware of in these moments. When you translate out this word weakness, it literally translates to the incapacity to do a thing. So in a moment when we are incapable to do something, as we're praying and talking to God, which is exactly what suffering seems to make us feel, that the good news is that in those moments when our groanings, our desires, the things that we ought to maybe even say, it says are too deep for words. More properly translated, this phrase, too deep for words, is actually more like so deep within us that we can't actually get it out into words. So we often think of it as like wailing and weeping and groaning. Some of us were just like, listen, I I get you. I'm going to start trying to pray. Then we start to pray in front of other people and we're like, okay, now I know what it feels like to not have the right words because I don't know what to say when other people are around and I definitely don't want to say anything, right? Nothing sounds right. Nothing feels right. Nothing seems right. I can't pray like this person. I can't pray like this person. But what Paul's actually saying is he's saying there are points when we suffer, when we are physically incapable of asking God for the things that that we should ask him for, which is for his will to be done. In fact, the, the even words can't come out of us. I'm sure none of us know what this feels like. 
these groanings within us that can't quite get brought to the surface in audible words to say, God, as hard as this is, your will be done, not mine. Because I've never known more clearly what I wanted in my life than I do right now. And instead of just asking you for that, I'm going to ask for your will to be done. For many of us, those words sit within us like groans. There's something about having to say something that's really hard. I remember being in marriage counseling with my wife, Ellie, and I remember how easy it was for me to talk. I can think of, when I say remember, like I still do it, how easy it is for me to talk to even a marriage counselor about my wife, or about our situation. There's nothing harder for me than when he utters these terrible, horrible words where he says, why don't you turn and say those words to her? And all of a sudden, me, a guy who's so good with words, is physically incapable. I like start laughing and I get really uncomfortable. And I realize like the act of actually saying the thing to the person can be a lot harder than we often think because there's power in it. And so what we see in these words that Paul's speaking to is not in the manner in which we pray or the style of how we pray. So for those of you who are like, oh, I want to be a fancy prayer, I want to be like this person, good news, the Holy Spirit takes my words and makes them these big, impressive, powerful words. No, not really. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's the content of your prayer that the Holy Spirit is going to change. When, in the same way that when you become a Christian, Jesus stands in your place uh, he has your, your resume becomes his resume. You, his place in the family of God becomes your place in the family of God. Your prayers through the Holy Spirit become his prayers. You say your feeble things. You can't even get the words out. You literally pray for nothing but your own will to be done, even. But according to Paul, as the believer approaches God in prayer, because we have the Holy Spirit living within us, the Holy Spirit takes those words translates them and changes them around, fills them with power to be the words that will cause God's will to be done. This is crazy what he's describing. And I don't mean crazy like untrue. I mean, it's incredible when you think about the power that Paul is speaking about here. He's saying that when we, in our feeble attempts to talk to God, give our words to him, he changes those words in such a way that his will will now be done. Our prayers become God's will. Now, yes, you could probably take a picture of that and post it somewhere and say you're never going to believe they're preaching at OCEC because you could take that in one of a million different ways maybe. But the words that Paul is saying here, he is telling the church that when we are to pray for God's will to be done, that his will is going to be done. That God doesn't rely on us always knowing exactly the right thing to ask for and to pray. And this is a tremendous comfort for those of us who have suffered and gone to God in prayer. says, the Holy Spirit will help us in our weakness, will intercede for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's the exact thing that's happening. God searches the mind of the Holy Spirit, which knows his, his will, which knows what is ultimately best, and that's what God's will is. Causes, and causes that to be the thing that's actually being said in this prayer. And that somehow that prayer accomplishes something tremendous. 
But the question still remains, why would anyone actually pray for God's will to be done when we're suffering and the pain is right in front of us, we're living through it, and it, is, it feels like the hardest thing for us to focus on? Anything but our own will and what we want. He goes on to explain this. He goes on to explain something very important, which is this, that God's will is for your good. Why would we pray for God's will to be done? Because we know it is true that God's will is ultimately the best good for everyone and for us included, according to what Paul writes about here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, this does not say for those who believe in God, for those who trust in God, for those who are obedient to God. It says for those who love God. Why? I think the reason that Paul uses this word is because the point is the great battle in the heart of any believer is to love God as we love everything else. And so the more that we mature in faith, the more sanctified we are, the more we grow to be like Jesus, the more we will love God like we love all this other stuff and all these other things. Why is suffering so hard and scary? Because it robs us of the things that we love. But for those who love God, not just those who use God as a way of pointing out how wrong everyone else is, not just those who um, choose to serve God as, as slaves even or as servants in obedience, not just those who believe in the, uh, the statements about God they read about in the Bible in their brain and nowhere else, saying those who are giving over their hearts and actually love God, finding pleasure in God himself, will find that God is working these things out according to their good. The great pain of trial is that it robs us of these things that we love so much. Our relationships, our resources, our health, our independence, our freedom. And it seems like trials can rob us of anything. It seems like there's nothing that is off the table. You know, I think sometimes a good definition for the word anxiety, this word that we associate with something that seems so irrational, I think of anxiety as a sudden awareness of just how much you can lose tomorrow. I think of that as anxiety. I don't think that anxiety is right, and I don't think that it makes sense with all of what God tells us. But when a person feels anxious, when we feel anxious, much of the time that is simply us dwelling on and thinking about the things that we could lose, the things that could happen, how unsafe it feels like we are in the midst of all of that. The great battle in the life of all people, of all people, is to love God or everything else. To love God or all these other things that we're attached to. And you can agree with the idea of God. You can obey the rules of God. You can call God down to your enemies. Because of how ignorant they are of him, how much more obedient you are. But when suffering comes, you won't find peace in any of those versions of God. Do I love God or do I love all these things? For most, of course, I love all these things. I love these things so much. I love these people in my life so much. I love the stuff that I have so much. I was at my daughter's swim practice last week. It was her first time in the pool. I was so nervous. 
I was so nervous that it would go well. I was talking to a, um, a growth group about this this week, and one person said, he said, I go to my son's baseball game, or my grandson's baseball game, and by the time it's over, I feel like I just played nine innings. <laughs> it's exhausting because you love them so much, right? You love them so much. You love these people and these things and the stuff that God has given us, these good gifts. He's the father of good gifts to us, and we love them so much. And the challenge for believers is to, is to begin to and to find ways to love God like we love these people and these things. It really is hard. It really is hard, it seems. As we live in the flesh, even though God is better than all these things and we know that is true about him in our minds, it is hard to experientially love him as we do these things. But for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, this does not say that all things are good, which is important. Paul is not saying that we rejoice in all these terrible things happening when they happen because they're good things. They're not good things. Christians are not supposed to be people who love suffering, who welcome it and ask for it and want it. And we should never pray for other people to suffer. In fact, I just want to give you a good word of warning right now. Don't do that (laughs) because probably you'll end up suffering. Christians aren't masochists who love this stuff. No, we don't rejoice in life badly because we want pain. He's not saying all things are good. He's saying all things work together for good. He's not even saying that the promise here is that our circumstances are going to turn out even better than they were before. This is not a promise that pain isn't going to come again for us. This is a promise that God, that what this trial is doing in me is more important than the circumstances themselves. So what Paul's saying in these words here is that for those who love God, all these things that are happening, as hard as they are, will work together for good. And for those who are called according to their purpose. It doesn't even stop and say for good. Because then it could still be like, well, sure, there's some big, greater good that's, that's, you know, something I'm not connected to that I'm just kind of serving. Great, it'll all work out good for that. And some cosmic algebra equation on some chalkboard up in heaven where it's all supposed to work out, where I suffer and then other people get good things or something. It's all good. Great. Thanks, God. That makes me feel great. No, he goes on. They work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, that somehow... There is things working together for good, not just for the kingdom of God, but for you as well. And then he explains how this works and what this good is. What is the good? What is the good? We know that God's will is for your good and the greatest good is this, to become like Jesus. He goes on to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, we see this word, words like predestination, 
And we go, oh boy, oh boy. Because we have huge debates over this term, this idea, the idea, the question of, does God choose us? Do we choose him? This word predestination is not speaking to the, the way in which a person becomes saved. Predestined here in this context is specifically Paul's way of explaining to us that if you are a person who loves God and is following him, then your destiny is already determined. You are predestined. And it's a very good destiny. And because God knows all things, and he knows that you choose him, then before you were even born, your destiny was determined, and it was a very, very good one. This concept speaks to the end goal, the destiny that always awaits those who are saved through faith in Jesus. If you, if you choose to follow Jesus, this is your destiny. And the destiny is this. The destiny is this. You are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Think about a car in a junkyard somewhere that has just been beat up and destroyed. And now imagine that car being brought in and going through the process of being restored. Think about all of the work and if the car could feel the pain that would be involved the coats of paint and primer and all the putty and the rewiring of all the electrical and, and, and the replacing of so many different parts. Think of all that would have to go in to that car to be restored. And this is, Paul describes it as us being conformed, being made into the likeness of Jesus. If you don't like cars, you can think about it like Play-Doh. Imagine you are this little person made of Play-Doh. And as the trials and the suffering comes, and we pray for God's will to be done, and God's will is done, then what those trials and that suffering does is it begins to reshape us to be more in the resemblance of Jesus. That is the definition of good. What is our destination? What is this good, this good thing that we are all set for if we're following in Jesus? It is that we are going to be conformed by the things that we go through into the likeness of Christ. We spend a lot of time thinking about how hard we should be working on becoming like Jesus. And honestly, I think God does a lot of work through suffering that we don't do through following rules. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that as painful as things can be, you go through. That God does indeed bring us, draw us closer to him in that and change us and shape us and conform us more to be restored to Christ. This is the good. This is your greatest good. This is the greatest thing that can possibly happen to you. Forget an amazing career that ends in an amazing retirement. Forget an amazing family that ends in an amazing Christmas card. Forget an, an amazing healthy life that goes on into like 200 years or something like that. Forget dying on Mars or whatever else. That is not the greatest good. The greatest possible thing that can ever happen to you is that you be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. This, says Paul, is the great thing that can happen to us. And it is already decided that it will happen for you if you're a follower of Jesus. And that as you suffer and go through things, that as you pray, and you don't even know how to pray for what's right, for God's will to be done, all you want is for the pain and the difficulty to stop. Your prayers, by the power of the Spirit, will be changed. They will be translated into 
May God's will be done. And that actually will accomplish his will being done. It will cause his will to be done. We, this morning is, this, today is Palm Sunday. And as we talk about Palm Sunday, it's such a weird thing because uh, we're talking about and looking at this moment in which it's the beginning of the week that leads up to Jesus' death. So if you know how the story ends, which pretty much everyone seems to, then Palm Sunday is a weird thing because Jesus comes into Jerusalem and what happens? They, they celebrate him like a king. If ever there's an example of how circumstances don't actually dictate what the ultimate good is, you see it in the ministry of Jesus. The times that he was high, that he was riding high, literally on a donkey, the times that people were celebrating him and proclaiming him and worshiping him and everything was good, it turned out that things weren't quite as good as we thought that they were. And that ultimately the times that Jesus would suffer and the pain that he would endure would be suffering by choice because of what he knows that it would accomplish for us and ultimately for God himself. Boy, we are heading into a week in which Jesus prayed, God, let your will be done. As we, as we enjoy a, a community together on Thursday night, we enjoy the good things that God has given us. These people, these relationships, food, we enjoy the good things. And these things are to point us to the giver of the good gifts. To say how I want to love him as I love all this other stuff and these people around me. But that's a hard thing for me to do as I live in the flesh. As we walk our way to Good Friday and we look at what it was for Jesus to say, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if not, let your will be done. We see the example of one who actually had the power to stop the suffering from happening. But instead, he chose to allow it to continue. Why? Because of what he knew that it was accomplishing for the kingdom of God. Faith for us is this. It is knowing that in the midst of suffering and of trial, which is inevitable, that there is, that there is nothing greater that we can do in the midst of that pain than to bring it to our Heavenly Father. It will be a mess. We will be angry, we will be hurt, we will be bitter. And God says, bring it all to me. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us will change those very words, will we'll take those things and will accomplish God's will in your life. His goodwill. And that we have confidence and comfort in knowing that all of these things that are happening will work together for your good and for the good of his kingdom. And that your ultimate good is that you're going to be conformed more to the image of Jesus. What it means to have faith is to trust in that happening. That's why it's so great that we have community. We have, we have people who can lift up prayers for us on our behalves. We have people who can say the things that are hard for us to say. But let us be so encouraged, overwhelmed even, with how much our God cares for us, that he enables it to work this way. 
Let us see the power of the Spirit in our suffering and let us lean into it. Let us give those things over to him and let us be conformed to be more like Christ, to be restored to what we ultimately are meant to be. Let's pray and worship together. Heavenly Father, this is a hard message to preach and a hard passage to preach because I am not currently suffering a lot right now. I say that because I know of so many who are, so many who are facing really, really painful diagnoses. So many who have lost so much and those who are close to them. I know of so many in this church who are struggling, who are angry even, who are confused, who are scared. And who feel surprised by this fiery trial as it comes upon us. Father, it's hard to talk about these things knowing that so many out here are hurting in this way. But Father, for us to believe in your word and all that it says, for us to believe and have faith in you is to trust that you are bigger than these things. That as Pastor Matt said last week, Lord, we as a people can suffer better than any. We can feel everything that is happening and we can run headlong into it. We need not be afraid of it because you are big enough to handle all of those things and because what you are doing in them is far, far greater and the things that matter most in this life of ours can never be taken away from us, Father. God, that is not an easy thing for us to believe. So as we worship, as we pray, as we reflect, God, would you grow our confidence in those simple truths about you and our suffering, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit, in the same way that it takes our prayers and makes them pleasing to you, would your Holy Spirit take these time as we sing to you and pray to you and cry out to you? Would your Holy Spirit empower it? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.